Welcome to this episode of Video Learning Lab. I have a very special guest today, one of the biggest voices in helping educators move into the field of instructional design. Devlin, it's good to have you. It's good to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me. All right. So you have a boot camp, a community of instructional designers, and a lot of great content on YouTube and other channels. And it seems like everywhere I look, there's someone who's interacted with a piece of your learning content. And so I'm sure the road to here was not an easy one and you've had to build your company up piece by piece and content piece by piece. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the beginning of this journey and where you got started in instructional design and how you got to here? Sure, yeah, I, I got started pretty early. So I was in college, I was an undergrad and I was really interested in teaching. So I was like, I really wanna either teach high school English or pursue a PhD and like take the gamble on maybe getting like a tenure track role, even though every professor I talked to was like, that's probably not going to happen. It's like really rough out there. Um, so I was still, I still had that in mind, but my senior year of undergrad, while I was like interviewing at some like private high schools uh, to, to teach English, I got this part-time job. I applied for like a really basic part-time journalism job and they interviewed me and they're like, hey, looks like you'd be a good fit, but there's no room on the journalism team. We actually want to bring you onto the training team. And hmm. so again, this was like 10 hours a week, like super minimal, but I started getting some experience doing that. And it reminded me of this instructional design presentation I had seen at my university through the College of Education, like a couple of years prior to that. And I was like, this is weird. I've never heard of this. I think I Googled it once and I was like, huh, yeah, seems seems interesting. And then kind of moved along. I was like, I want to teach. But um, after kind of just happening into the field like this through this really low commitment kind of job, um, I started looking into the master's program at my university more and like looking more about the opportunities in the field. And I was like, wow, this this seems like there's pretty good opportunity here. Like the pay is pretty good. Like the work, the work satisfaction seems like really good. And and a lot of this seems like it could be done from a computer, at least from the e-learning development standpoint. So I was like, mm. I got it in my mind because I really wanted to travel. I was like, maybe I could do this. I could still help people learn. I could still use my writing skills because I was very passionate about writing and I, I love technology. So and I could use tech while like working from my laptop and traveling Europe, traveling abroad. That was yeah. like the idea I got in my head. I'm like, I'm going to do this. Maybe I could be freelancing and like set my own hours. No idea if this is even possible, but worst case, I can get like a corporate job making a decent living and, and I can shut down at the end of the work day and not have to think about work. <laughs> um, so that was the impetus into instructional design. Yeah, yeah you're, you're kind of thinking about um, work-life balance before it was cool, essentially, where <laughs> you're envisioning the life that you had. And I, I, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that you're able to figure that out that early on in, in the game, because I know that, you know, with educators, it's more of like a, almost like a realization where you get to a point, I, I know for me personally, you get to a point where you're either burnt out or um, you're realizing, hey, this is maybe a little bit more than I actually signed up for. There's aspects of you know, the day-to-day -day job that are that are really tough. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that you, you got a chance to explore that before uh, you got to that point. That sounds tough. Yeah, I, I had I had this really good like English teacher in high school, which is what made me want to get into this. And then every every teacher I talked to starting like my freshman year of college, like and on, I would talk to teachers about my goal and they're like, what? Like, why are you doing that? And then they're like, oh, well, I guess like someone has to do, you know, I guess like the new generation has to change things, but it's like miserable. And then my, my mother-in-law has been a teacher for like over 30 years. And I see like, you know, just how much she has to work and all the stuff she has to deal with. 
So yeah, a lot of different teachers in my life that were yeah feeling very burnt out and <laughs> not super yeah happy. <laughs> Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. I, I think, you know, I, I want to squeeze the, the, the most out of every second with you here today to talk right. about instructional design. But um, yeah. uh, before we dive into the fundamentals, I the, I think a question that's been on my mind and, you know, a, a little bit about your audience, you're working with those transitioning educators going into instructional design. Uh, you know, what is the biggest obstacle for those educators? Because they, they, you know, they do instructional design in one form, and then there's the instructional designers, the people with the title, uh, or learning designers, whatever our, our industry is going by these days. What's different about, or, or what's the biggest obstacle or the biggest gap between that classroom instruction and instructional design outside the K-12 space? Yeah, good, good question. I think teachers are, are all, they already are pretty familiar with how people learn. They have yeah. a general idea of how to design learning experiences. Like they're good at that. They're good at seeing what the gaps are and helping people bridge those gaps. And at its core, that is a lot of what instructional design is. The tool set that instructional designers or learning designers use, I would say is very different than what a teacher would use in a, in a classroom setting, especially mm -hmm. because yeah, teachers, if they are designing learning, they're also the facilitators, right? They're getting in front of the class, they're working with these students every day. Whereas instructional designers, yeah, you're often working more behind the scenes. Um, you're doing more of the design. So you're working with the subject matter experts, you're designing the lessons. And in a lot of cases, especially with this like remote first kind of movement, a lot yeah. of the work now, and already was before, but a lot of it is this like self-paced e-learning experience where there isn't going to be a facilitator to answer facilitator to answer questions or yeah, guide people through things it's like here is a self-paced learning experience uh, it's a little bit different designing something like that with tools like articulate storyline um, and using a different set of principles of yeah what makes for a good multimedia learning experience without a facilitator compared to a good like facilitator-led classroom experience so and then there are just the cultural differences too of like working in corporate which is where a lot of these educators are transitioning into um, as opposed to working in an education setting yeah and, and there, there's something in there about you know when you have that face-to-face -face instruction you know you're able to uh deliver your key point but then you can see maybe in real time a student's reaction you have all this other information to assess you know is this learning sticking you're able to you have a very controlled group of of students as well where you know you get the benefit of the whole year of looking at their development plan but i, I definitely hear what you're saying where you know if you're designing let's say asynchronous e-learning you you know it, it's not that you set it and forget it but you set it and then you kind of wait for the results to come in or wait for the feedback to come in and so there, there's that huge uh, it's there's that huge gap between what you said or what you put down and then what's being received and i i understand that's a huge challenge can, can you talk a little bit more about the the tools gap and, and why that's such a, a big hurdle to overcome um, yeah, I honestly don't know if it's like a massive hurdle. I would say, I mean, the first and maybe biggest hurdle to overcome is accepting that you're going to need to upskill if you're coming into mm -hmm. instructional design from education. I think that's a really common mistake where people are like, yeah, I, I, I do know how people learn. I've been helping people learn for like five, 10, 30 years. Yeah. Instructional design is all about helping people learn. Like I can do that. Let me send in my resume to a hundred open roles and surely I'm going to get an, an instructional design job. Like they'll see my valuable experience. And then you might not get a single interview doing that. So yeah. that I think is the biggest obstacle. But once I, the, the people transitioning into the field realize, okay, you know, I might have, I might have these very, this very valuable like knowledge, experience, and skills, 
but it looks a little bit different in corporate instructional design. And I'm going to have to put in some work to, to learn the tools that I might have never used before um, and to build a portfolio to show off what I can do and actually take these steps to set myself apart from maybe hundreds or thousands of other teachers who who aren't do doing those things. Yeah, might not be. Yeah. Doing. But the tool itself, like Articulate Storyline, I think that's like probably the that is the most popular like e-learning authoring tool for these self-paced experiences. Like, I don't think it's particularly difficult to learn. It's very similar to PowerPoint. It's not like, oh, I'm going to teach myself how to do like software engineering from scratch. <laughs> like, you can yeah. learn the basics in anywhere from a few hours to, you know, a week or so. It seems scary when you look at these polished presentations or you look at animation in, yeah. you know, in any of these tools and think, you know, I don't know anything about video. I don't know anything about animation, but I, I, you know, for, for the, for the bulk of the work that I've had to do in instructional design, it's actually very simple. What's, what's actually required for you to, to master. And you can learn that if you put in the time. Um, and I know you have, you've got plenty of tools to help, help folks get on, on the road to that. You've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, how to get started in instructional design and you've rounded up kind of these five tenets uh, for us to talk through when there's a lot to discuss and I don't think we'll cover, you know, the entire breadth of instructional design, but I think that uh, these five are, are fundamental for the success of those who are creating learning. Yeah. And, and the context for these tenants are, I'm like, you know, people who may not know about instructional design, I just, what are some very simple, yeah, principles that would be yeah, a good kind of like mantra kind of <laughs> to remember to help guide some of these design decisions or process decisions. But yeah, your audience holds the key. That one was, yeah, really important to me and probably the most important one because a lot of the learning projects I was working on, even when I first got my foot in the field, the audience was nowhere to be found. <laughs> so, you know, I was talking to the client, um, but yeah, access to the people who are actually going to be taking the learning experience and like presumably benefiting from it and, and making a difference in their lives so that it can produce results for, for the organization. They, they weren't at the table and like, yeah, that, that I think is the most important piece. So I was getting pretty frustrated with some of the instructional design work I was doing because the, the stakeholders I was working with didn't really see the value of bringing learners into the, into the discussion that early. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I felt like I wasn't really making a big difference because I'm like, how do we know what these people really need, what, what their feelings are, like how they're going to respond to a learning experience like this, if, if we can't ask them. And so then when I started creating my content, which was very soon after I got into the industry, probably within the first year of me, of me working on projects and doing my master's degree, um, I was starting to create these tutorials to like solve problems that I was facing that I knew other instructional designers were going to be facing as well. Like mm. particularly technical problems in the beginning. So then mm -hmm. seeing, getting feedback and, and work, um, like focus grouping it kind of with people in the field, like asking, asking my peers or my classmates, like, Hey, are you able to follow this tutorial easily? Like, what's your experience like going through this and then posting it, sharing it on LinkedIn and getting some feedback like that and being able to kind of rapidly like iterate on my, on my free content for other instructional designers. That's where I started feeling like I was making a real difference and getting people telling me, Hey, this saved me a lot of time. This, this helped me a lot. Um, yeah, going back to like your very first question, like that's where it started kind of pushing me more and more towards creating the content. I was like, I like this. I'm in direct contact with my mm. audience. They're telling me what they need. I can I can look at that data. Um, there isn't like um, yeah, anyone like obscuring that access, so to speak. It, but, it, I, I think so, yeah, so something that's really cool about that is your um, 
you were in a position where you didn't have an audience. And so you're kind of thought outside yourself. There are other people in this position. There are other people who are facing the same day-to-day problems that I'm having. And so therefore, you know, you kind of had to start somewhere. You had to build these tutorials and then focus groups, group them and check them. And I think that's something that a lot of instructional designers, you know, they, they struggle with where it's like, oh, I don't have an audience. I don't quite know what I'm creating. And I think the reality is what you described. You don't have access to everyone who's going to inform a, a really good audience analysis. And so your approach was then to build, measure, learn, or build, test, measure, learn. And you're, you were then, it sounds like, I guess, what was the next step? Because you have these tutorials, which are kind of these like individual piecemeal courses, but then where do you go from there? I would say, yeah, advocate for a line of communication with the, with your audience, with the audience, whether that's, you know, can I send out a survey to learn more about the audience? Can I put together a small kind of focus or, or test group that we can get feedback on this prototype with like that, I think is one of the most powerful things you can possibly do when you're working on a learning experience, instead of let me build this entire thing, then we'll roll it out. And, you know, maybe now for the first time, it's seeing more than a couple of people. And then we'll measure feedback on it over the course of like a year and maybe make some updates mm-hmm. at the end of the year in our like annual review. It is so much more effective if you can say, hey, can we loop, loop in a group of five to 20 people and I can meet with them once a week and kind of get feedback on this prototype as I build it? Like that's how I built all of my offers and my business. I think that would work really well on the corporate side too getting a mm-hmm. prototype and putting it in front of people. It's like the SAM model or some of these like agile, like Addy approaches. It's like, we're going to do some light, some light analysis, right? Gather some information that we can then design and develop a prototype, which might be on a piece of paper, or it might be some really basic like PowerPoint slides just to show the proof of concept and then present it to people who are actually going to be going through it or who would have gone through it recently had they like got hired, you know, a little later, for example. So put it in front of people that actually need need the content, need the practice, need the information and see what their feedback is about that. That's going to help you make decisions much more effectively than, I don't know, a lot of other tools we have at our disposal. Like let's sift through the archives and look at some research to back up this decision. It's like, if you have your audience telling you, hey, this is going to be super, super helpful for us. Like that takes yeah. precedence. And and just in general, what are you looking for with that feedback when you're doing these iterative prototypes? I'm looking for um, clarity issues like this isn't clear. I'm not sure about that or also um, content. So it's like, you know, would this would this be helpful to know here? Would it be helpful to get some practice with this or do you want to like dive right into this next section? Um, Yeah. So and I guess it's very closely tied to like relevance. Like, is this going to help you accomplish this goal that we're set out to accomplish here? Is it can you see this helping you or does it feel like it's wasting your time? visuals or presentation things too it's like is this clear how you can like interact with how you interact with this any any feedback here honestly any any kind of design decisions where we're like i feel like this might be this could be a little bit better but Mm. even i even will like review kind of updates it's like here's what we're thinking here's what we have what do we think about this Mm. um and then sometimes yeah you might not even foresee what the issue might be or or think to ask about it specifically yeah. And and then what are the, you know, you're talking about the, this experimental iterative approach with focus groups. I think it's great. You get these bits of feedback along the way to help you tweak your design and make sure that it's effective before you launch it to the, to the wider audience. What are the, the, the consequences of not doing that? Let's say you're, you know, you don't have access to your audience. You build to the stakeholder vision. What happens if it, what could happen if you don't go through that, that process of nailing down your audience? 
I think that the likelihood of the learning experience being effective and actually helping you move closer towards your goals is going to be severely reduced. Like, I don't, I think it's going to be really hard to, to confidently say, Hey, this is really going to help people. This is really going to make a difference in these, in these people's lives. It's really going to help them do their jobs better. It's really hard to say that if they haven't been looped into the discussion at all in situations where you don't have that access, it's really about making like your, your client happy and your client might be a project manager, might be an executive and might be yeah, a head of learning. And maybe they have a really solid idea of like what the audience's needs are. And, and that's great. If they do, then yeah, probably will be yeah much more likely to be successful. But in a lot of cases, these people who are commissioning these projects out of have a lot of other things going on and they have a lot of assumptions that are guiding a lot of their decision-making Um and yeah, as an instructional designer, we have a lot of tools in our belt to to verify those assumptions and to actually talk to the people who this is for. Um, but yeah, I think the risk is build the learning experience, spend a lot of time, a lot of effort from you as mm. the designer and um, any other stakeholders you're working with who are reviewing this and contributing. And then it rolls out. People get through it as quickly as possible, maybe because it's mandatory or maybe yeah. they don't need, or maybe it's not mandatory and they never go to it because they don't, they, they didn't need it in the first place. Um, so that's a whole bigger discussion about analysis and, and all. Of that. Yeah. But yeah. The, yeah. The risk is useless, ineffective e-learning or, or a learning experience that isn't going to make any impact. Yeah. And, and, and just something that you just mentioned right there at the end is that a lot of training in the corporate space is assigned. And I think, a lot of folks see that as a green light. Well, their boss said so, and so therefore I'm going to create what the boss said and they'll have to do it. But that doesn't necessarily mean the outcome is going to be the actual audience member or, or the actual end user learning or applying that new skill or leading the business impact just because they had to do it or they had to check off a box. The next tenant that you have on here is, is alignment is everything. Yeah, I think for this one specifically, I was talking about alignment with the learning goal and learning objectives, just because I think that is such a fundamental like instructional design principle, and it can be such a useful yeah, tool for making decisions about what to include, what not to include, and, and scope and things like that. And I think it, it, it ties to a lot of other um, principles such as, you know, like related to cognitive load and like in, including like irrelevant information or like fun facts. It might not support the learning goal or or the learning objectives. It could be nice. It could be fun to know, but like it's not actually moving closer towards your goal. It might be taking you down the wrong direction as a designer. How do you approach that? I know a lot of folks talk about, you know, backwards design and making sure that they're building backwards from an outcome, but how do you ensure that everything is aligned when you're thinking about creating learning? Yeah, I think in in the simplest sense, it's what is our goal here? Like, why are we even designing a learning experience? Or maybe it's before that, you know, why are we even making any efforts here? Maybe you don't want to yeah. assume that a learning experience yeah. is the answer yet, but what are we trying to accomplish? Assuming it's a learning experience. Um, yeah, what do people need to know or be able to do in order to accomplish this? And so I yeah. think there are different ways to go about it. You can start with the business goal, right? We're trying to move this metric by this percent and use a more like action mapping kind of approach. And then what do people need to do in order to get us, you know, closer to that goal or make that make that happen? And then there's like a traditional approaches where it's like, here's our learning goal. We want people to be able to drive cars safely, you know, on American roadways. 
And mm -hmm. then it's, you know, what, so what do people need to need to know or be able to do in order to drive safely on American roadways? And then you can, each objective might, you know, it's like, well, they need to know what all the different signs mean. Then you could break that down into probably 20 to 30 objectives about identifying and responding to the different signs. Um, yeah. So it turns mm -hmm. into like a really kind of deep detailed outline if you're using that traditional approach of, you know, learning objectives and, and, and breaking those down terminal enabling, it can get kind of, you know, like complex and wordy, but at its core, I think it's, what are we trying to accomplish? What do people need to know or need to know or be able to do in order to accomplish that? Let's not teach them information or skills that aren't going to actually get them closer to that goal just for the sake of, oh, this will be nice to know, or, oh yeah, this, this subject matter expert that says that this is important. Let's, let's throw that in. It's a good kind of, um, yeah, like way to put blinders on. It's like, we're in pursuit of this goal. Feather stuff is going to come in into the mix. We need to push that away. We need to stay aligned with our goal. And not just with content, but also with activities, assessment questions. It's like any, any practice activities we want to do, we want it to be directly in support of, of either the goal or one of the objectives that are enabling the goal. We want to let people practice, which I think brings us into our next one. But <laughs> well, before we go into that one, I, I'm, I am excited to talk about that one because that's a juicy one. But um, when I, I, I think a conversation that comes up time and time again, you're uh, in the instructional design world is this kind of story of the instructional designer as the order taker. And, you know, a lot of stakeholders will say, you know, we need training. I, you know, and a lot of folks are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. I think, you know, if you look on LinkedIn, the most common advice is to say like, no, we, you know, do we actually need training? But the reality of it is that if you're starting out as an instructional designer, it's hard to get alignment that, you know, is training even going to be the solution? And I'm, I'm curious, what is, how do you coach people through that process? Or what do you tell them if they're, if they're starting out as an entry-level instructional designer, a training request comes down, they have the business objective and kind of the metrics that they're targeting, but the, a senior stakeholder says, this is a training it needs to happen. Yeah, I don't think there is an easy answer for that. Like I struggled against that even as a freelancer for years and trying different approaches and, and seeing what will work. And I, yeah, well, there would be small wins, but it's not like if I say the right words, these executives or key stakeholders are going to change their mind and give me full agency over the solution. <laughs> like I think yeah. it takes some time or at least a really good track record to kind of build that trust and attract those types of clients. My portfolio was all e-learning and like cool interactions, maybe and little games and stuff like that. They're not coming yeah. to me to, you know, change their, you know, metrics by a big percent and like yeah, and I started presenting myself differently, but still it was like I didn't have uh, um, case studies of here are these big metrics I moved and with these big clients I worked for. Like, I think it takes a lot of social proof and like credibility to just come into a business and get that. Yeah, yeah get that that freedom. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, th yeah. I think that people have some success. Um, yeah, taking steps in the right direction. It's like, well, first, you know, let's let's conduct a survey to see what our audience, you know learn more about our audience here and like slowly start implementing more and more of those things. Like I think action mapping has some good suggestions on how to handle that conversation. And instead of like immediately being resistant, it's kind of like, let's, you know, it's kind of redirecting the conversation to a goal and then asking questions about how we can achieve that goal. And it's kind of like, instead of saying, Oh no, we're not going to do a course. It's like, we're not even going to have that resistance right now. We're not going to like push back on each other like that. 
we're just going to dive deep into the problem and what what we need people to actually do and then we can make the case for how we can get people to do what we want what we need or want them to do most effectively but it but it is it is tricky i i set expectations i let people because that was a wake-up call for me like in my master's program you learn how to conduct these needs assessments and how to how to do all this analysis and how to make a real actual difference with instructional design and then you get hired into these roles and or, or yeah, like that, that, that first role I had that I mentioned, I was like, I got promoted to like a training team lead, but I was like, there's like, we're doing PowerPoints and Google slides. And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's help people practice. And it's like, oh no, we drew, we view training as a way to spread information. So I'm yes. like, that's like the antithesis of what I want to do. Like I want, I want to actually change behavior and like make it, yeah. make a real difference here. <laughs> so I, uh, sometimes it just feels like you're fighting an uphill battle and I'm like, I, I, I need to leave this. Like this isn't, like, I'm not going to grow here. I'm not going to make the impact I want to make here. So I think it's uh, always a yeah. question of, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I've well, no, I, I got, I got too excited because I, I think something that's coming out of this is, you know, really is a company expecting a training initiative if it's if it is in fact training to be the sole driver of this business metric if that's the only thing that's going to you know make give an uptick in numbers then that company is probably in trouble because there's probably also processes that need to happen there's also coaching and environmental things and, and just uh, the the problem is probably going to be much larger than training itself and so i think you know what i'm taking away is also be realistic about you know do action mapping, get to this core of the problem, understand your audience and what the stakeholder is trying to say, but also be realistic about what exactly the impact of what you can create in a training space or an asynchronous course, how much that's going to impact that that business metric. Is it really the only thing? Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah, I think it's probably, yeah, very rarely, if ever, it's like this problem will be completely resolved if the employees have this new knowledge or these new skills. Like it's usually yeah. the yeah, a combination of a lot of different things, environmental factors, like different motivational concerns, which again, could be due in large part to the environment, compensation, um, all sorts of things like that. And I think if you are new, like I worked with some teams as a freelancer and they would do that performance consulting piece and they would have the reports of like their analysis findings. And they had a really deep understanding of like the situation, the problem they would. And then they viewed the learning component as like, yeah, one prong of this like multi-pronged approach. Like they were really effective in it. Like there are teams like that out there. And if you're passionate about performance improvement, I would, and you are brand new, I would say, yeah, definitely try to join a team that already does think that way and i've seen some people find success talking this way on um landing roles on teams who are like yeah we want to move in that direction in the future right now we're churning out you know 10 courses a week um, but we want to be able to do that in the future so we're going to take on someone who like knows how to talk that talk and can help us eventually walk that walk but again it can be frustrating if you're like itching to <laughs> itching to use more of a performance consulting approach um, but the team that you're on is really resistant to it yeah. And just because there's a lot that she said in there that's so valuable, I think for entry-level instructional designers, you're also calling out the fact that this is just the start of your career. There are many different ways that instruct instructional design is a very broad field. There are many different roles and niches within that. And there's a lot of different places to go. Um, yeah. All right.
So we talked about skills and uh, I didn't mean to cut you off earlier, but that third tenant is practice and feedback make perfect. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why, why practice and why feedback looking at those two as complete as two distinct things here? Yeah. When it comes to skill building, I think that's like the most effective thing that you can possibly be designing for is to let people get these practice experiences in this risk-free environment. And everyone hears that, you know, knows the saying like practice makes perfect, right? I feel like we've been hearing that for for so long, but the feedback component is the missing piece there, maybe the implied piece, but it's equally as important, Mm. especially important for us to think about as instructional designers. Um, you can tell someone, oh yeah, go out there and practice kicking that soccer ball for 10 hours a day, get out there and, you know, get to it. If you have one, one person doing that and another person out there with a coach who can give feedback after every kick, it's going to be very different results with, between those two, you know, the learners. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I've heard amend, amendments to that where it's like, you know, if you think about, you know, the, what's the metric 10,000 hours, but it's yeah. 10,000 hours of purposeful practice. And then there's also maybe it's implied or that's completely missing that feedback. You have to have somebody who recognizes, is able to recognize what good looks like so that you can kind of lead someone there. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, when you're designing, you know, a lot of in early stage instructional designers are are making courses. And if you're a transitioning educator, we talked about that before. It's like the biggest gap is you're delivering, you're facilitating face-to-face instruction. You have so many points of feedback, so many opportunities to, to add purposeful practice into your daily instruction. But I guess, what is the, how, how do you balance kind of the learner's need for practice and feedback with other instructional goals and constraints like you know your time or the fact that it's an asynchronous course i think i think that's one of the best ways to make an asynchronous course more effective and i think right there's a lot of talk about interactivity it's always like yeah make it more interactive like oh yeah we want these different interactions like especially when i was getting into the field um yeah interactive equaled higher production value and like better but incorporating interactivity just for the sake of like making it interactive like it's kind of that i think that is kind of a waste of time on the designer's part the developer's part and the actual learner's part it's like you know click these different things to like see the information appear it's like well there's nothing meaningful about that it's just like clicking for the sake of clicking um but when you can when you can make an asynchronous or self-paced learning experience interactive for the sake of like providing practice opportunities that makes the interactivity much more intentional and yeah you actually are yeah you actually are there is a learning a learning benefit from that and instead of thinking of like oh yeah i need to make this more interactive like how do i add interactivity instead it's like which what what knowledge do i want people to practice or like memorize better or which skills do i want people to practice applying that's what that's where i need to draw my my interactive like practice activities from so on a very basic example, if someone needs to like memorize some key vocab, you can design a like a practice flashcard activity as part of the experience. If it's something, you know, if it is like an information-based like traditional course, the practice activities could be these knowledge checks or these quiz questions. And then the feedback comes in instead of, you know, answering. And then it's like, oh, this is correct or this is incorrect. Try again. You can give some more detailed feedback um, to help people make the right choice next time. 
and and reach that deeper level of of understanding. And then my, you know my favorite is is when we get into the scenario based learning and you can practice making decisions in these like story driven environments. So it's like you know you now you're gonna get some practice as a you know this person working on the job. You know try to make it through the day without upsetting any customers. For example, if we're like a mm -hmm. cashier or something, then you're like at the cashier, you know register someone comes through and they like make a complaint or want to return something then it asks you like how do you want to respond and then if you make the wrong choice you see that story driven consequence and the customer gets upset or you know just walks out without paying or those sorts of experiences i have the most fun um designing and developing when i was doing client work i got to a point where i was exclusively working on those kind of projects but regardless of what type of project it is practice and feedback are, are really important for making the learning experience more engaging and effective. I, I what's the uh, one I, I really like what you're talking about it, the uh, the difference between, you know, just knowledge checks and making sure that maybe that bit of knowledge is sticking in there. And then with scenario based learning, you're getting into that decision making, which to me is, is, is the ultimate goal of training employees. It's you don't necessarily want them to have just no that something is good or bad, you want them to be able to act on that. Um, so I, I, I think scenario-based learning is, you know, it's a bit more. There's a bit more design into the experience that goes into that, and thinking about how these characters interact into, in a world. But uh, that is, you know, kind of if you go a, a next step up in, in terms of this isn't just know how to do this. It's I can recognize this obstacle on the job, and I can then make hopefully the right decision. And when you make that decision, I think that's what leads to that upper level business impact. So what does good feedback look like in an asynchronous course? Again, I like the feedback in, like in these scenario-based experiences that is story-driven and not like prescriptive at all. Like I feel like most learning, you know, like information-based courses you do, it's like, this is incorrect for this reason. Like, don't, you know, don't forget, like, this is a key principle at play here. Like try applying that, try again. So it kind of like gives you the reveal. It's like, this is where you went wrong. Maybe this is like a common mistake that people make. And like, here's why people might make it. Here's how we can arrive at the correct choice or the correct response. And that's like a lot of what you see. But this other like scenario-based approach, this like consequences-based feedback, mm. it's just all storytelling. So it's mm -hmm. like, we're not going to get pres prescriptive at all. When I teach people this approach, I'm like, we're not going to use the coaching voice. We're going to just keep it rooted in the consequences. So you make a choice and it's just immediate storytelling. It's like, the, you know, the customer moves up, customer moves up and says or does this. So it is really tying in your head. Okay, this action leads to upset customer. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it, again, it makes it a bit more memorable, I think. And that's very in line with um, like Kathy Moore's action mapping. And that really resonated with me. Yeah, I think I think good feedback is feedback that's going to, yeah, guide a, lead to a different choice next time. <laughs> and I think yeah. consequences mm -hmm. are really effective at doing that. But if you can do that in a prescriptive way, I think that's what we're aiming for: helping identify the flaws in people's thinking um, and arriving at a better framework to use next time, or reinforcing the framework that they might have learned, but just like the repetition. It's like, oh, right. Yeah, I did see that a little while back. I need to try applying that next time. Yeah, it's it's framing learning as, you know, expert, expert experimentation and failure, where yes. you're coming up, you as the user are coming up to a particular problem or something, excuse me, is happening right in front of you. And then uh, you get to decide, and then you get to kind of see in the safe space of a of an e-learning course before you're on the job, before you're in front of a customer, before that person is right in front of you, you have an opportunity to say, 
let me try this and see what happens. Oh, that was the decision I made based on that outcome of the customer leaving. I might not make that choice the next time. That, that sounds like it's that idea of user choice. That sounds like really affect. That's what effective feedback looks like. You're not controlling the learner. You're just putting opportunities in front of them for them to essentially fail until they get it. Whatever I guess right looks like for them. Yeah, I love that approach. And it's like you said, it's like make the mistakes here so that you don't make them on the job. <laughs> and of course, there are very, you know, wide range of fidelity there. It's like on one hand, that can be a one-off multiple choice question. You know, Susie just came into your checkout line and, you know, this is a situation. Or it can be like a VR experience where you're like fully immersed and people are like, and you're like speaking out loud to respond to the customer in real time. <laughs> so yeah. the production value can really vary, but the principle is the same. It's like practice in this risk-free e-learning environment, make your mistakes here, learn from the mistakes, you know, memorize, you're going to, these, these, these consequences should hopefully stick with you. Um, so then when you are on the job and you are talking to a real cu customer, you're going to, yeah, know what to do a bit better because you've gotten that practice. At least you have one mistake in your pocket and you know, <laughs> at least one thing not to do. Yes. Uh, no, that, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, okay, so the, the 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 fourth tenet we have here is people learn together. Uh, can you, you know, there's a lot in here that I think you'd pull out about social learning, but and how people interact. But what does that mean for you? What is this this tenet about? Yeah, I think that tenet is about facilitating connections between people. I think, like you're saying with social learning, like so many people are learning on the job you know, just from jobs I've held, it's like you go through this like multi-million dollar like training program, but you're leaning on your peers a lot, your peers, and then maybe the people who are more experienced. It's like you have these messaging apps, you're asking them, hey, have you run into this before? What do you think about this? Mm. Um, and then, yeah, back when I was, you know, starting building out some more of my offers, I made a Slack channel for just like a few people for a very specific like pilot program of, of something I was building. But then we just started having some greater discussions about like instructional design and the different projects we were working on. We were like, why don't we like open this up to everyone? And so then we started getting like, yeah, just so many different instructional designers and people joining and, and take, you know, taking this was like in 2020, probably. So mm -hmm. people were really, um, you know, isolated. But just seeing the stuff that came out of that, and I'm just like watching it happen. Um, yeah, it's just people are, yeah, helping each other with so many different like instructional design, e-learning, job searching tasks. I think, yeah, social learning, if when we can design for it is really powerful. And then I would incorporate that into the programs I'm developing. It's like, let's intentionally pair people with partners or bring people onto teams or host these networking events because some of the most valuable experiences people have had in my programs are experiences that weren't even designed or planned by me. It was stuff that came from those, those peer interactions and just, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, deciding amongst themselves, hey, we're going to help each other do some like in-depth like job prep for these roles we're applying to and do mock interviews together before wow. I would even have any like material to really help in depth with interviewing. <laughs> so it's it's amazing at seeing what, yeah, what, how people are able to help each other in ways that an instructional designer can't even fully envision from the very beginning. And, and also beginning instructional design roles, you know, a lot of those are one one human wolf packs, you know, so you're, you're just kind of designing 
you're just designing kind of a, in, in this empty space in a company and you have no idea if you're even doing this correctly. You're just kind of following, uh, you know, instructions to design training or to use this tool, but you have no idea what that even means, or even if you're doing it well. And so I think I I've seen within, you know, the, the, the Slack community that you have, there are, it is amazing that people are sharing frameworks and, uh, in particular scenarios of, of, of things that have happened at work and how they tackle them. And that to me is, is better than anything that, you know, an expert can out of the blue provide because they haven't had that particular experience. So I, I like this idea of, of, of people really helping each other um, as a way of, uh, of uh, professional development, especially when they can't get that in their, their local sphere. I, I just, you know, Maybe what is the, the the starting point for somebody who's looking to build a learning community? Is it to, you know, should they start with a Slack group? Like how can they experiment with incorporating social learning, whether that's, you know, in their learning design or, uh, yeah, well, let's just start there. How can you uh, experiment with that? What's like a, a good starting place if you're, if you want to get into it? I think probably, I think they're a low, a low hanging fruit starting place is probably like discussion questions even embedded within within a course like i know a lot of learning management systems have that capability i don't think it's as effective because there isn't really like a hub where people can come together um so i think mm -hmm. that's like the next step up is that like building a community space where people can come together you can add some organization and facilitate connections i moved on from slack to a tool called circle because you know for a free community slacks um like payment options Things before you know you have to pay yeah. per user per month and that didn't work when there were like five thousand people in there all for free <laughs> um so we moved over to a platform called circle but it's the same idea it's you know let's give let's organize the spaces a little bit let's try to facilitate connections if we see we see someone say something and we know that this other person has some expertise in this thing let's try to connect these two people um i know you know we've tried before and i know other people do like some prompts or like some weekly challenges or like some some rituals, so to speak, that um, mm. people can engage in together. But I, I've heard some really cool stuff about what people do on corporate learning teams and how they kind of brand their like learning community and and they invite different um, employees or teams into that community space. And then a lot of, you know, I've heard of companies and teams that already, you know, a lot of people already have Slack, for example, um, but you might make like a learning team channel on Slack that, that different people from across the org can join to stay up to date with learning pieces. But yeah, I think it's really about having a space for people to connect. Um, and then beyond that, you know, some people design intentional like mentor, mentee um, aspects of like a learning experience. So it's like mm -hmm. people who are going through this learning program do get paired with the mentor um, and, and, and that mentor has volunteered from within the organization to provide that support to the newer people. So the, some I've seen designers like formalize that support as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the uh, the 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 starting point that you mentioned is people have to literally have a place. They have to have uh, whether that's digital or physical. They have to uh, have a place to meet, and that's where the social learning starts. Um, yeah. And, and you, you've given us a couple of ways you can do that, but. Welcome to this episode of Video Learning Lab. I have a very special guest today, one of the biggest voices in helping educators move into the field of instructional design. Devlin, it's good to have you. It's good to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me. 
All right. So you have a boot camp, a community of instructional designers, and a lot of great content on YouTube and other channels. And it seems like everywhere I look, there's someone who's interacted with a piece of your learning content. And so I'm sure the road to here was not an easy one and you've had to build your company up piece by piece and content piece by piece. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the beginning of this journey and where you got started in instructional design and how you got to here? Sure, yeah, I, I got started pretty early. So I was in college, I was an undergrad and I was really interested in teaching. So I was like, I really wanna either teach high school English or pursue a PhD and like take the gamble on maybe getting like a tenure track role, even though every professor I talked to was like, that's probably not going to happen. It's like really rough out there. Um, so I was still, I still had that in mind, but my senior year of undergrad, while I was like interviewing at some like private high schools uh, to, to teach English, I, got this part-time job. I applied for like a really basic part-time journalism job and they interviewed me and they're like, Hey, looks like you'd be a good fit, but there's no room on the journalism team. We actually want to bring you onto the training team. And mm. so again, this was like 10 hours a week, like super minimal, but I started getting some experience doing that. And it reminded me of this instructional design presentation I had seen at my university through the college of education, like a couple of years prior to that. And I was like, this is weird. I've never heard of this. I think I Googled it once and I was like, huh, yeah, seems seems interesting. And then kind of moved along. I was like, I want to teach. But um, after kind of just happening into the field like this through this really low commitment kind of job, um, I started looking into the master's program at my university more and like looking more about the opportunities in the field. And I was like, wow, this this seems like there's pretty good opportunity here. Like the pay is pretty good. Like the work, the work satisfaction seems like really good. And, and a lot of this seems like it could be done from a computer, at least from the e-learning development standpoint. So I was like, mm. I got it in my mind because I really wanted to travel. I was like, maybe I could do this. I could still help people learn. I could still use my writing skills because I was very passionate about writing. And I, I love technology. So, and I could use tech while like working from my laptop and traveling Europe, traveling abroad. That was yeah. like the idea I got in my head. I'm like, I'm going to do this. Maybe I could be freelancing and like set my own hours no idea if this is even possible, but worst case, I can get like a corporate job making a decent living and, and I can shut down at the end of the work day and not have to think about work. <laughs> um, so that was the impetus into instructional design. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're kind of thinking about um, work-life balance before it was cool, essentially where <laughs> you're envisioning the life that you had. And I, I, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that you're able to figure that out that early on in, in the game, because I know that, you know, with educators, it's more of like a, almost like a realization or you get to a point. Uh, I know for me personally, you get to a point where you're either burnt out or um, you're realizing, Hey, this is maybe a little bit more than I actually signed up for. There's aspects of, you know, the day-to-day -day job that are, that are really tough. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that you, you got a chance to explore that before uh, you got to that point. That sounds tough. Yeah, I, I had, I had this really good, like English teacher in high school, which is what made me want to get into this. And then every, every teacher I talked to starting like my freshman year of college, like, and on, I would talk to teachers about my goal and they're like, what, like, why are you doing that? And then they're like, oh, well, I guess like someone has to do, you know, I guess like the new generation has to change things, but it's like miserable. And then my, my mother-in-law has been a teacher for like over 30 years. And I see like, you know, just how much she has to work and all the stuff she has to deal with. So yeah, a lot of different teachers in my life that were, yeah, feeling very burnt out and not super, yeah, happy. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. I, I think, you know, I, I want to squeeze the, the, the most out of every second with you here today to talk right. about instructional design. But um, yeah. 
uh, before we dive into the fundamentals, I, the, I think a question that's been on my mind and you know, a, a little bit about your audience, you're working with those transitioning educators going into instructional design. Uh, you know, what is the biggest obstacle for those educators? Because they, they, you know, they do instructional design in one form, and then there's the instructional designers, the people with the title, uh, or learning designers, whatever our, our industry is going by these days. What's different about, or, or what's the biggest obstacle or the biggest gap between that classroom instruction and instructional design outside the K-12 space? Yeah, good, good question. I think teachers are, are all, they already are pretty familiar with how people learn. They have yeah. a generality of how to design learning experiences. Like they're good at that. They're good at seeing what the gaps are and helping people bridge those gaps. And at its core, that is a lot of what instructional design is. The tool set that instructional designers or learning designers use, I would say is very different than what a teacher would use in a, in a classroom setting, especially mm -hmm. because yeah, teachers, if they are designing learning, they're also the facilitators, right? They're getting in front of the class. They're working with these students every day. Whereas instructional designers, yeah, you're often working more behind the scenes. Um, you're doing more of the design. So you're working with the subject matter experts. You're designing the lessons. And in a lot of cases, especially with this like remote first kind of movement, a lot yeah. of the work now, and already was before, but a lot of it is this like self-paced e-learning experience where there isn't going to be a facilitator to answer a facilitator to answer questions or yeah, guide people through things. It's like, here's a self-paced learning experience. Uh, it's a little bit different designing something like that with tools like Articulate Storyline um, and using a different set of principles of, yeah, what makes for a good multimedia learning experience without a facilitator compared to a good like facilitator-led classroom experience. So, and then there are just the cultural differences too of like working in corporate, which is where a lot of these educators are transitioning into um, as opposed to working in an education setting. Yeah, and, and there, there's something in there about, you know, when you have that face-to-face -face instruction, you know, you're able to uh, deliver your key point, but then you can see maybe in real time a student's reaction. You have all this other information to assess, you know, is this learning sticking? You're able to, you have a very controlled group of, of students as well, where, you know, you get the benefit of the whole year of looking at their development plan. But I, I definitely hear what you're saying where, you know, if you're designing, let's say, asynchronous e-learning, you, you know, it, it's not that you set it and forget it, but you set it and then you kind of wait for the results to come in or wait for the feedback to come in. And so there, there's that huge, uh, it's, there's that huge gap between what you said or what you put down and then what's being received. And I, I understand that's a huge challenge. Can, can you talk a little bit more about the, the tools gap and, and why that's such a, a big hurdle to overcome? Um, yeah, I honestly don't know if it's like a massive hurdle. I would say, I mean, the first and maybe biggest hurdle to overcome is accepting that you're going to need to upskill if you're coming into mm -hmm. instructional design from education. I think that's a really common mistake where people are like, yeah, I, I, I do know how people learn. I've been helping people learn for like 5, 10, 30 years. Yeah. Instructional design is all about helping people learn. Like I can do that. Let me send in my resume to a hundred open roles and surely I'm going to get an, an instructional design job. Like they'll see my valuable experience. And then you might not get a single interview doing that. So yeah. that I think is the biggest obstacle. But once I, the people transitioning into the field realize, okay, you know, I might have, I might have these very, this very valuable, like knowledge, experience, and skills, but it looks a little bit different in corporate instructional design. And I'm going to have to put in some work to, to learn the tools that I might've never used before um, and to build a portfolio to show off what I can do and actually take these steps to set myself apart from maybe hundreds or thousands of other teachers who, who aren't do doing those things. Yeah, might not be. Good. Yeah, 
but the tool itself like articulate storyline i think that's like probably the most that is the most popular like e-learning authoring tool for these self-paced experiences like i don't think it's particularly difficult to learn it's very similar to powerpoint it's not like oh, i'm going to teach myself how to do like software engineering from scratch <laughs> like, you can yeah. learn the basics in anywhere from a few hours to you know a week or so it seems scary when you look at these polished presentations or you look at animation in yeah. you know in any of these tools and think you know I don't know anything about video. I don't know anything about animation, but I, I, you know, for, for the, for the bulk of the work that I've had to do in instructional design, it's actually very simple. What's, what's actually required for you to, to master. And you can learn that if you put in the time. Um, and I know you have, you've got plenty of tools to help, help folks get on, on the road to that.